This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley yes i'm still here but them's the blakes uh, coming up on today's episode it's a bit of a jumble if i'm honest it's not the usual uh, uh, collection of things uh, clearly i was on air today as boris johnson confirms that he was resigning so let's sort of try and move through things in a sort of chronological order we kicked off at the beginning of the show with my tribute to boris johnson Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, and what a morning. In the end, everybody leaves Boris Johnson. Wooed by his charisma and way with words, so many have been drawn to the political Pied Piper, delivering his colourful, sometimes controversial quotes with a wink and a smile. To him, it was only words. The mistake was when people tried to hold him to it. The Times kicked him out for lying. Michael Howard kicked him out for lying. Liberal Londoners took them to their hearts and then turned their back. Remainers showed him the door. Never mind the wives and mistresses, allies and acolytes cast off along the way. Now what, 53, 59 ministers have left him. The Chancellor he appointed only 36 hours ago has left him. So he prepares to stand outside number 10, his belongings in bin bags, not for the first time. Nothing in his life became him like the leaving of it. He's leaving like a chaotic, forgetful, deluded, selfish, directionless, friendless, childish, thin-skinned, confused, narcissistic lunatic, as he led us. It turns out the joke is just not funny anymore. The Heineken politician so successful for so many years, lost his fizz. No more get Brexit done, no more build back better, no more levelling up, no more parties, no more wallpaper, no more tree houses, no more jobs for carry, just, just no more. Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson was born in New York in 1964, destined to live up to the outlandishness of his given name. As a child, he wanted to be world king. He had a chaotic, at sometimes truly traumatic childhood before attending Eton. 
His father, Stanley, was sent this letter by the school in 1982, read here by his former leadership rival, Rory Stewart, in 2019. Dear Stanley, Boris really has adopted a disgracefully cavalier attitude to his classical studies. It is a question of priorities, which most of his colleagues have no difficulty in sorting out. Boris sometimes seems affronted when criticized for what amounts to a gross failure of responsibility and surprised at the same time that he was not appointed captain of the school. All the clues were there. He later went to Oxford, where he was a member of the infamous drinking society, the Bullingdon Club. Well, they throw around bread rolls in smash-up restaurants. His great friendship and rivalry with David Cameron began. Here they are later, together, at the start of Boris Johnson's mayoral campaign. Excellent opportunity for London to have someone who I think can unite Londoners, can inspire Londoners, and can give leadership to what is one of the, the, the greatest city in the world. And I, it needs yeah, a great leader. Yeah, what's one of them? It Sorry, is the, the, the greatest right. city in the world. London is the greatest city in the world. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. No, no, I'd, I'd finish. <laughs> you make a very good point. But before the political career came the journalistic career, it got off to an inauspicious start when he was sacked from the Times for making up a quote, but then settled into the Daily Telegraph, where he used a posting in Brussels in 1989 to make a name for himself. No bendy banana was left unturned in his hunt for a story, becoming a favourite of Margaret Thatcher along the way. I certainly think that, as a general tactic in life, if that's what you're driving at, it is, it is often useful to give the slight impression that you are deliberately pretending not to know what is going on because the reality may be that you don't know what is going on but people won't be able to tell the difference. As a columnist and later editor of The Spectator, his use of words often landed him in trouble. Letterboxes uh, being a prime example. And we'll come back to haunt him later. But it also made him a star. From Have I Got News For You... Good evening and welcome to Have I Got News For You. I'm Boris Johnson. To MP for Henley and then an unlikely bid to become Mayor of London. Defying the odds and the left leanings of the capital to win not once but twice. It was a high wire, zip wire sort of mayoralty which bestowed on him global fame as a flag waving cheerleader for the greatest city on earth. It's going well, it's very, very well organised. What they do... <laughs> Get me a ladder. And all that time he was linked with a bid for the top job. Here he was in 2013. I think it's a very tough job being Prime Minister. Very tough job. I mean, obviously, if the, if the ball came loose from the back of a scrum, um, which it won't, like, or, or of course it would be... It'd be a great, great thing to have a crack at, but it's not going to happen. And yet, there was always the suspicion, as with so many parts of his life, he enjoyed the thrill of the chase rather than the drudgery of long-term commitment. And then in 2015, a return to the Commons. But within a year, he was once again fighting his old friend, David Cameron. If any other politician anywhere in the world got stuck on a zip wire, it would be, you know... Disastrous for Boris, it'll be an absolute triumph. Uh, there's no um, he, um, he defies he all forms of gravity. But then they were not fighting for the premiership, but the direction of the country. More words spilt on an article in favour of Brexit and one against. And so is the front man for leave. He knew the power of words. 
especially when written on the side of a bus. Though for the first time, he also experienced the new sensation of enjoying the adoration of only half the country. I think we should take the chance now, as a country, to take back control. Take back control of huge sums of money, of huge sums of money, of £350 million a week, and spend it on our priorities. And yes, and yes, let us take back control of our borders with a sensible, fair and impartial system. It was an extraordinary result. Almost no one saw it coming, including Boris Johnson himself. It was not part of the plan. The morning after the victory, he was shell-shocked. While supporters looked for a future, future Prime Minister, he went and played cricket. And then Michael Gove knocked him for six when he withdrew his support. Boris is an amazing and an impressive person. But I've realised in the last few days that Boris isn't capable of building that team and providing that unity. And so I came reluctantly but firmly to the conclusion that as someone who had argued from the beginning that we should leave the European Union, and as someone who wanted to ensure that a bold, positive vision for our future was implemented, that I had to stand for the leadership of the Conservative Party. A reminder there of where this psychodrama began and has been going on for so long. Unusually, in a life of near constant adulation for Boris Johnson, he had to concede at that point he was not a winner. Theresa May, who could not have been more different to her colleague, made him Foreign Secretary, but he lasted only two years before quitting over her Brexit plan. There is time. And if the Prime Minister can fix that vision once again before us, then I believe she can deliver a great Brexit for Britain with a positive, self-confident approach that will unite this party, unite this House and unite this country as well. Repeatedly written off, including by me, and isolated on the backbenches, he staged another comeback, rebuilding his team and reputation, emerging as the unbeatable frontrunner to replace Theresa May three years ago. Tory MPs didn't love him. Lots of them didn't like him. But they correctly calculated at that point he was the only man who could win a general election, end the political impasse and deliver Brexit. So it was on July the 24th, 2019, that the biographer of Winston Churchill finally crossed the threshold of number 10 in the footsteps of his hero. A rocky start to his premiership saw his prorogation of Parliament ruled unlawful and stuck with a Commons that would not budge. He finally forced an election. When Britain went to the polls on December the 12th, 2019, Boris Johnson took the Tories to their biggest win for decades, smashing through the red wall of Northern Labour seats. This, this morning I, I went to Buckingham Palace and I am forming a new government. And on Monday, MPs will arrive at Westminster to form a new parliament. And I'm proud to say that members of our new One Nation government, a people's government, will set out from constituencies that have never returned a Conservative MP for 100 years. And yes, they will have an overwhelming mandate from this election to get Brexit done, and we will honour that mandate by January the 31st. It was an extraordinary result, although perhaps not as unprecedented as the hyperbole suggests. David Cameron actually added more seats in numerical terms in 2010. Cameron, Blair, Thatcher, Attlee all got bigger election swings. But it didn't matter. The Heineken politician was back, able to reach into parts of working-class Labour that no Tory leader had ever managed before. 
Twice married, twice divorced, and literally countless children. His personal relationships were as complex as those with the electorate and the truth. But his dream of Brexit was finally delivered on January 31st, 2020. But on the same day, the first two cases of coronavirus were confirmed in the UK. Over the next two years, this was a battle that would come to dominate his early premiership, the country and the world. It would even, in a moment of high drama, lead to him being hospitalised with the virus. I've today left hospital after a week in which the NHS has saved my life. No question. It's hard to find words to express my debt. But before I come to that, I want to thank everyone in the entire UK for the effort and the sacrifice you have made and are making. But even that brush with death could not stop him and his staff from having a good time. The first report of a lockdown-breaking party seems tame by comparison, from wine and cheese and Zoom quizzes to... Sue Gray's revelations of wine at the walls, sick on the floor and a culture of endless boozing while the rest of the country stayed at home to save lives. Firstly, I want to say sorry. And I'm sorry for the things we simply didn't get right and also sorry for the way that this matter has been handled. And it's no use saying that this or that was within the rules and it's no use saying that people were working hard. This pandemic was hard for everyone. And yet it came hot on the heels of the fiasco of trying to save Owen Paterson from himself. And it eroded the confidence of the public and the Conservative Parliamentary Party. And then, earlier this year, his popularity surged again, held as a hero, almost carried through the streets. But it was the streets of Ukraine and not Britain. He did get the tough calls right on vaccines in Ukraine, as supporters claimed. Yet too often he got other calls spectacularly wrong. Almost by accident last month, a confidence vote was triggered when over 40% of his own MPs declared they'd lost confidence in his leadership. I think it's a, an extremely good, uh, positive, conclusive, decisive result which enables us to move on, uh, to unite and to focus on delivery. And that is exactly what we're going to do. He was safe for a year, said the wise heads. And then an MP by the name of Chris Pincher, known outside Westminster, had a drink. Not for the first time, he'd had one too many. Accused of groping two men, he resigned as Deputy Chief Whip. Remember, this is less than a week ago. But it's not the scandal, but the cover-up that gets you in the end. Again and again, Boris Johnson's number 10 lied. They told ministers to lie about what the Prime Minister had known about one of his closest allies. At Cabinet this week, the holders of the great offices of state looked like they were going to be sick. The shock was not that Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid resigned on Tuesday. It was that they took them so long. A trickle of people you've never heard of, quickened from jobs you didn't know existed, suddenly became a flood. Just yesterday, Keir Starmer had an unusually good PMQs, while Tory MPs sat in stony silence. The power the disgraced government minister had was handed to him by that Prime Minister. And he's only in power because he's been propped up for months by a corrupted party defending the indefensible. So it's no longer a case about swapping the person at the top. Isn't it clear the only way the country can get the fresh start it deserves is by getting rid of a lot of them? Notable by his absence from PMQs was Michael Gove, 
he'd already told the Prime Minister the game was up. And yet, on and on he went. When times are tough and when the country faces pressures on uh, the economy uh, and pressures on their budgets, Mr Speaker, and when we have the biggest war in Europe for 80 years, Mr Speaker, uh, that, is when, that is exactly the moment that you'd expect a government uh, to continue with its work, not to walk away, uh, Mr Speaker, and to get on with our job and to focus on the things that matter to the people of this country. And that, so we're not only cutting taxes uh, today, Mr Speaker, we're putting £1,200 into every uh, one of the 8 million most vulnerable households in the country, Mr Speaker, thanks to the strength of our economy and thanks to the decisions that we took, Mr Speaker, which he opposed at the time. On and on and on he went. I left the show yesterday, went straight to Westminster, where I spotted David Conzini, the Prime Minister's Deputy Chief of Staff, sitting in Portcullis with a book called Conundrum. It would turn out to be a conundrum they couldn't solve. On to the liaison committee, where Boris Johnson was hailing specific policies, unaware that the minister responsible for that policy had resigned outside. He went back to Downing Street to be greeted by a frosty cabinet with ministers who wanted to oust him, queuing up like the crowd outside a new Primark store, scrambling to get in to be the one to tell him to go. In another surprise turn of events, he then sacked his rival, Michael Gove, from the Cabinet in an attempt to show him who's really boss. And then the Chancellor Boris Johnson appointed 36 hours ago, the Dean Zahawi told him he had to go. And now he's going. Boris Johnson's hero, Winston Churchill, once said, This is not the end. It is not the beginning of the end. It is perhaps the end of the beginning. But this really is the end. He wanted to go on and on until 2030. In fact, he's fallen 30 days short of even out surviving Theresa May. Everyone else has left him and now he must leave too. So that was the life and times of Boris Johnson. Then we had our columnist panel, as ever, on a Friday. It's Night at the Marriott, it's India Night and James Marriott. The columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Night and James Marriott on Times Radio. Yes, as we always do on a Thursday morning, uh, it's India Night. Morning, India. Good morning. And James Marriott. Morning, morning. James. Good morning. Uh, Some have been a word how you feel this morning, India. Just absolutely astonished and flabbergasted. Your show was so good yesterday. Um, I, I even trotted across to my laptop to watch you on YouTube. That's how gripped I was. Well, people are. People are watching online right now, um, including somebody spotted I ate a sausage and somebody's texted in saying, why are you broadcasting live? Too fat, a rude word, picking out live on YouTube. Such class profession, I think. Allowed to eat a sausage during the news. These people Look, so rude. Uh, we've been very busy all snack. morning. If the could, government's falling apart. If you could eat in the what? bath, James, you could eat on the radio. I'd like to say that uh, India and I would never would never eat during the news. <laughs> that is correct. What do you think Boris Johnson will be remembered for? I mean, on the sort of great ups and I mean, he doesn't do anything by halves. The great ups and downs, the roller coaster that is Boris Johnson's life as well as political career. Will he be remembered for winning that election, getting Brexit done? Will he be remembered for the manner of his departure? 
I think he will probably, by resigning today, be remembered for um, achieving a sort of Brexit and getting it kind of done. Um, I think he was, re- last night, when he was saying he was going to hang on, you know, you've got this kind of Miss Havisham vibe of him sitting there all by himself, you know, remembering his past glories with nobody there. Um uh, and it was all kind of veering and da- very dangerously into kind of Trump territory, you know, sort of deluded, mad person. I think, I think in his own head, he probably thought that he was going to reinvent the narrative of of how you leave office. You know, he was going to be a kind of silverback beating his chest and raging against the dying of the light, rather than a kind of slightly broken figure weeping in the back of a car <laughs> being driven away. But it ended up, as I say, kind of da- looking dangerously Trumpian. So it's good for him that he's resigning today. I think he uh, needs to leave sooner than the autumn because the thing is not workable. He's missing 59 people, 60 people, however many people it is. Um, but yeah, I'm, I think if he leaves today, I wonder also whether his decision to leave um is maybe to do in part with somebody pointing out to him that he was doing intense damage to his personal brand and his to his capacity for being paid enormous amounts of money for after dinner speeches or you know publishing <laughs> deals event. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. He was really, really, he was really kind of debasing himself, and I wonder if that played into it. Um, but I think if he gives a good speech at the lectern that we're all waiting for, he will just be remembered for Brexit rather than for the catastrophic ending of his tenure. That's interesting. Uh, what about what about you, James? I kind of wonder if the sort of the sort of final month's chaos will end up defining him a bit. It's kind of hard to say in the midst of it, isn't it? But I just think all the kind of that kind of ro- rolling scandals, rolling sleaze. I mean, the manner of his departure, which yeah, I mean, he has managed to you know say he's going to resign today. But it was still chaotic. I, I think the chaos is going to define it. I think chaos and COVID, I think, for me, the sort of um, the alarming spectacle of him telling us that we all have to stay at home uh, to protect the NHS and stay lives, I think will stick. And I think there's chaos. I think those are the two kind of, I think those are the two big bits of his legacy that, that will end up sort of sticking in people's minds. I suppose the problem is because actually because of uh, uh, COVID, he hasn't actually, you know, there, is a, there is a good case. I remember speaking to people in his team early 2020. And there was, we thought we were going to get a big bang sort of policy explosion after the election in late 2019. New year, new Boris Johnson, new plan. And they kept putting it off. It was coming. He was working it up. It was coming. It was coming. It was coming. And then COVID hit. And they even then, I remember someone saying, look, this is going to take like a couple of months. And by the time we get to the end of COVID in a couple of months time, we'll have lost the chance to sort of reset and reboot and relaunch and set out his plan. And obviously then it didn't take a couple of months, it took a couple of years. And he never really got to do anything else. Yeah, and the the committee hearing yesterday after Prime Minister's questions, it was just kind of alar- alarming to see, you know, being asked all these sort of specific questions about transport policy and, um, you know, potential food crisis. And he just didn't seem, I mean, obviously he was distracted, but it really kind of laid bare how he just didn't seem on top of the detail in these complaints about, you know, you send you send you know you send something into Downing Street and it just kind of goes into this black hole and doesn't it doesn't come back. It really kind of made you understand how sort of sclerotic and dysfunctional and, and sort of mad the whole thing had become. Uh, and, and also there was no plan. You know, the plan was for Boris to be prime minister. That was the plan. Literally, that was the plan. And then once he was prime minister, he wasn't even interested in being first among equals. He just wanted to be first, you know. So this sort of his appointments, I think, very much reflected that. And so 
there was kind of nothing. And what's extraordinary to me about the whole thing is that he and only he is the architect of his own demise. You know, he he did for himself. And that is, you know, kind of tragic and sort of extraordinary. But I suppose and... if the only plan was him, for him to be Prime Minister, it's not a surprise that it's ended like this because the plan is to be Prime Minister. You want that plan to continue for as long as possible, and you know, yeah. and his and his something will turn up has served him so well over the years. Uh, finally, though, but just before we move on, um, who do you think, or who would you like to see replace him? In the... well, I'm not a Tory, but I think. I mean, I've been saying this for weeks now. I think Jeremy Hunt. I, from what I read, Jeremy Hunt doesn't stand a chance. Um, but I think you know somebody uh, experienced, um, sober, intelligent a kind of safe pair of hands who knows what he's doing, rather than a sudden wild enthusiasm of somebody who's suddenly in the public eye because because Ukraine is at war or, or whatever. I think somebody somebody with a bit of bottom uh, would be a good idea, probably. Uh, James? Um, I, I can't really summon any enthusiasm, but I have a suspicion that Nadim Zahawi may be a bit of a dark horse. Um... Well, although his his behaviour the last few hours has been quite the spectacle. Yes, yeah. Uh, yes, it certainly has. I mean, ben, um, Nadim Zahawi has made several catastrophic misjudgments, I think. Firstly, taking the job. Secondly, mm. secondly then immediately U-turning. And then thirdly, this morning, not even resigning as Michelle Donnellan did, mm. escaping with a modicum of honour, addressing a, a letter to nobody, not least the Prime Minister, in which he didn't resign, told the Prime Minister to go now. And now looks like it was written in the full knowledge that the Prime Minister was indeed about to resign. So this yeah. whole, you know, Nadim Zahawi's first introduction to the public has been a, <laughs> uh, you know, a series of disastrous Quite extraordinary PR moves, uh, interventions. India Knight and James Marriott there. So then let's take a look at Boris Johnson's legacy as Prime Minister. I was joined by his biographer, Andrew Jimson, and his former advisor, Katie Perrier. Let's reflect now on the man, uh, Boris Johnson. We can speak to Andrew Jimson, uh, regular on this show when he was the, uh, the Prime Minister's for us, uh, political historian, columnist, uh, and author of Boris, The Making of the Prime Minister, who joins me now. Hi, Andrew. Matt, hi. Good to, good to hear you. Good to have you with us. We've also got Katie Perrier with us, who is a political advisor for Boris Johnson, back when he was a, an unlikely candidate to be the Mayor of London. Hi, Katie. Good morning. Um, Andrew... It's a mess, this, isn't it? What a way to go. Yes, it's good for liberty, I think. And there's a kind of relief that the decision has been taken. Um, and we don't have fixed terms. So we don't have, in, in that respect, we don't have lame duck prime ministers who, although one could say that Theresa May was a bit of a lame duck by the end, but anyhow, he's gone. A decision has been taken. Um, and as with just about everything that Boris Johnson has ever been involved in, it's all happened in a rather exaggerated way and he's pushed his luck beyond what um what what most normal people would um what do you feel this morning katie i mean lots of people have joked in the past that boris johnson just wanted to have been prime minister so he's at least pulled that off yeah and he wanted to be prime minister longer than Theresa may but he's not pulled that off um it depends how much longer he stays in office whether or not there's a caretaker Prime Minister, and whether or not we have to wait to the autumn. I think all of those options are bad. Uh, I'm really sorry for Conservative MPs that we might interrupt their time on the sun lounger, but I think they need to stay in Westminster and find a new Prime Minister. Um, we are facing a cost of living crisis. There are lots of things going on in Ukraine. Um, we need to make sure that we can get 
back to governing the nation. People were really worried about things like, you know, how they could afford to eat, put petrol in a car, put school uniforms on the backs of their children come September. We cannot be waiting until the autumn to resolve this situation. Um, Andrew, how do you think Boris Johnson will be feeling this morning? Um, well, he'll he'll feel very hurt. He, he'll 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 want to put on a brave front to the world, and uh, he'll be thinking about how he can become prime minister again, uh, as well as going off and and you know giving million dollar speeches. And he's writing a book about a very obscure playwright you you may not have heard of him a chap called William Shakespeare <laughs> or is he going to put him on <laughs> the long way the whole the whole downfall is rather Shakespearean um he's he's been assassinated in full view all sorts of people sticking their daggers into him at PMQs was it only yesterday I think it was yeah what do you think he will do what do you think he'll do Andrew will he will he quit parliament altogether so he can go off and earn loads of money will he be a sort of Ted Heath Theresa May figure on the Commons benches I would have I don't know, and he, uh, and he often surprises us. He's not a proper parliamentarian. That's one reason why um, 148 MPs voted against him. He never properly embedded himself in the House of Commons. Um, but I, it, it, it would be odd for him to go immediately and then, and therefore exclude him. No longer be available as a, as a, as a sort of as an alternative prime minister should whoever the Tories light on. I thought, I thought Patrick was about to uh, uh, announce that, that uh, <laughs> Greg Clark was throwing his hat into the leadership. Um, well, yeah, I wondered that. <laughs> I mean, we can't rule it out. Well, he could be. I mean, if you look at the rest of the field, Andrew... We'll, we will get a... some pretty surprising candidates. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're a good watcher of these things, Katie. You're, you're plugged into to what people um, are saying privately and who's, who's, who's been on manoeuvres for a long time and who hasn't. Who's your money on uh, for, the, for the leadership contest? Oh, it's a truly wide open field. Um, and when people, uh, don't forget, we have to see who the MPs are backing first before it goes to the Conservative Party membership. I always thought it was amusing that uh, in, in America and other countries, you could really novel that, that process. But here it's kind of quite straightforward. But if you are a member of a political party, of the Conservative Party, you, you know, hopefully you will get your chance. In previous years, they've not managed to have that chance. They've been, unfortunately, um, sort of for members, not been able to go to hustings, not been able to you know, participate. I think we will go through that process this time. I think it will go to the party membership. But, you know, it's, it, that process, that is wide open. And I, too, thought you were about to announce that Greg Clark was standing for party leader. <laughs> so it really is, you know, Larry the cat might as well throw his hat in the ring as well. Uh, Andrew, Jamie in Gloucestershire has been in touch. When I read Andrew's book on Prime Ministers in early 2021, uh, there's Jimson's Prime Ministers from Walpole yep. to Johnson, available in all the bookshops, I thought his judgment that Theresa May was the worst Prime Minister we'd ever had was questionable. Boris seemed even then about level with her. Who does Andrew now think has won that accolade? Oh, I think it's Goodrich, definitely. Uh, pri <laughs> Prime, Minister. <laughs> Prime Minister in the 1820s, very briefly. He, he kept on bursting into tears. There have been much worse Prime Ministers than either Theresa May or Boris Johnson, just that most, most people don't have these names at the, at the front of their mind. Um, and you put, I, I, th I think Boris will go down as a very considerable figure, even if he doesn't. If he, even if he doesn't manage, like Harold Wilson, Winston Churchill... Benjamin Disraeli and many others to come back for a second term. Would you would you genuinely not rule that out? You think he might? I try certainly and come wouldn't back? rule it out. I mean, I don't know how he's going to play it, but he does regard politics as a higher calling than 
journalism. He'll do loads of journalism. He'll do loads of speaking. He'll make loads of money. But I, I would be surprised if if he thinks he can spend the rest of his life without trying to be prime minister again. He is just. I mean, he once said that they all they all buzz around like demented wasps in a jam jar. Um, they all want to be prime minister, and he wants it more than anyone else. Which is one, which is why it's been so difficult to defenestrate him. Um, Katie, you were, you were the point that you were making about how MPs, Conservative MPs, need to give up their their holiday plans. This is because um, the way that, that it works is that uh, there'll be a deadline. Tory MPs need to throw their hat into the ring. Uh, the 1922 committee will set a timetable for this. But once they've got the people who've got enough support to get onto the first ballot, they then need to be whittled down. In my mind, I think they sort of did, was it twice a week, sort of Tuesdays and Thursdays, they'd have a vote and knock someone out and somebody else might pull out and they would just keep doing that until they've got two people left. And that could take, I mean, that could potentially take weeks, couldn't it? Um, Yeah, although that normally goes quite quickly because people suddenly realise they just don't have the numbers. And then it's all about what candidate you fall behind. So then there's PACs, there's kind of, I'll be your Chancellor, I'll be your Home Secretary, I want one of the top jobs in government. So actually that process doesn't really drag out all that long. It's the Hustings process where it takes it to the party members across the country. I think they did something like 17 Hustings last time around. Over a six-week period, it costs the Conservative Party the best part of a million pounds. The nation doesn't want it. They want it, They need to get on with it. I think that they should shrink that down to a two-week period, five major hustings, uh, big venues across the country, get on with it, and then get out of the party leader before the summer. Um, I really don't think, uh, in the situation the country is in right now and the issues that they are facing, I really don't think um, anyone's got any patience. We are a kind of... Order it now, it comes in 15 minutes, generation. You know, swipe on your phone, get what you need. We do not have the patience to wait for the Conservative Party to sort it out. Right, one word answer, well, two word answers from you both. Uh, Andrew, who's going to be the next Prime Minister? Nadine Zahawi. Uh, Katie? No idea, there's two words for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're more polite than some of the two words you've used towards me in the past. One man who insists it's nothing to do with him, that Boris Johnson is how he is, is Max Hastings. He was editor of the Daily Telegraph when Boris Johnson was Brussels correspondent and he joined me earlier. How do you feel this morning, Max? Well, hugely relieved that at last it does look as if Boris... I won't really believe Boris has gone until he's been buried at a crossroads with a stake driven through his heart. Um, And I must say... A cold hand clutched at my heart when I just heard Andrew Jimson talking about the possibility of a Johnson comeback. Uh, I think a much better historian than me, David Kiniston, said to me a couple of years ago, he said he thought that Johnson was the most morally debased national leader Britain's had since the 18th century. That seems about right. Uh, Yes, there were some equally bad people in the 18th century, but what many of us want to see, and the comment, the, the comments on the column that I wrote for the Times this morning about this, many of us want to see Britain become a serious country again, as it has not been. That Boris Johnson, we've had a clown prime minister, and it has not been funny. I think many people in Britain still don't understand how low our standing in the world has sunk as a result of having this preposterous figure, um, this music hall turn um, in Downing Street. And the first task of any successor um, has got to be to uh, make Britain look serious again, to make Britain seem a country that whose word can be trusted on the world stage, above all by banning all this nonsense about abrogating the Irish protocol. Um, the great fear today, I mean, yes, first, 
as Thatcher once said, only rejoice at the prospect of Johnson going. But second, because of the crazy leadership system that David Cameron installed, so that the tiny number of party members will in the end have the casting vote about who becomes prime minister, and many of them are fanatics, um, we could get somebody like Liz Truss, um, who arguably might even be a worse prime minister than Johnson, because Johnson, whatever else you say, is not a fool. Um, and so there are some worse people out there. And so one's great fear now. I mean, if we get somebody serious um, of the kind of whether it's um, Jeremy Hunt or Rishi Sunak, these are serious people. These are people with serious ideas. But if we get another ridiculous figure um, posturing on the world stage, uh, telling the British people they can have their cake and eat it, the great fear is that these people whom Johnson has promoted, um, who only Johnson would have had in his cabinet, people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and, and uh, Nadine Doris and so on, if one of the, some of these people remain near the top, we may get a continuation of Johnson's disastrous policies, and we need change. And the Conservative Party's got to demonstrate, I think, in the weeks ahead, that it's capable of changing. Otherwise, if it's simply morphed into the Johnson Party, if Boris Johnson is able to spend the next few weeks influencing who his successor is, so we get somebody equally preposterous um, installed in his place, then Britain is not out of the wood. Britain is still in a very bad place as a result of, of these disastrous political developments. So we have to have hope this morning, because the, the good news is that we, we seem to be looking like getting rid of Johnson. But by God, we've got to get somebody much, much better to give Britain a, a chance of renewal. Uh, Max Hastings, we go back three years, just before Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, you wrote a piece of The Guardian. Uh, saying he was un unfit to be Prime Minister. Uh, the Conservative Party was about to foist a tasteless joke upon the British people who will not find it funny for long. Are you, how, how much are you having to resist just saying, I told you so? I've tried to avoid using those <laughs> words. In fact, in my column this morning, I've explicitly not used the words, I told you so. But in fact, I wrote back in 2012, and in fact, uh, Boris Johnson's father had the cheek to, um, to taunt me with it that back in 2012, for another newspaper, um, I wrote that if Boris Johnson ever got near the top in, in British politics, then it would be time to emigrate to Buenos Aires. And his father came up to me with great glee somewhere a few years ago and, and said, why aren't you in Buenos Aires? And it's perfectly true that I think an awful lot of British people, if we could afford the airfares anymore, Buenos Aires looks a better place to be as a result of what this man, um, Stanley Johnson's son, has done to Britain. Um, Max, just finally, because um, it's really good to have you, uh, who do you think will replace Boris Johnson? Who would you like to see? Who do you think really can... Uh... I have no idea. I, as I said, there are, if you get, there are other people out there. Boris Johnson has only promoted to the Cabinet uh, people who are slavishly loyal to him. Uh, but Rishi Sunak is a serious person, although I don't share Michael Gove's views. Nobody could dispute that Michael Gove is a very serious politician, um, uh, Jeremy Hunt is a very serious politician, but please, God, do not let the Conservative Party install another clown committed to continuing Johnson's um, have-cake-and-eat-it non-policies. <laughs> Max, do you ever wish you hadn't given him that job at The Telegraph? I never wish I hadn't been in that job, but I, I got rung up soon after Boris Johnson became Prime Minister uh, by The Washington Post, who said rather accusingly to me, a Washington Post reporter, he said, but you invented Boris Johnson. He <laughs> said, you gave him a job at the Daily Telegraph and he worked for you for nine or ten years. And I said it seemed to me reasonable to judge 
ambitious young journalists by different standards from those that you judge prime ministers. And Boris Johnson is a brilliant entertainer. He's a brilliant columnist. He's one of the finest journalists of his generation. But I always thought, and I said many times, he was wholly unfit for public life because Boris has never cared for any human being on earth other than himself. And above all, I think we're entitled to ask for a prime minister who cares about the British people. And Boris Johnson is not even capable of, of simulating compassion. And in the months and years ahead, we're going to have very hard times. And we've got to have a national leader who can convince the British people that we really are all this together instead of just being in it for Boris Johnson. Max Hastings, really good to uh, hear from you today. Really uh, appreciate your time. I know it's a busy day. Max Hastings there, former uh, editor of the Daily Telegraph and Boris Johnson was a columnist there. I just wish you'd get off the fence and tell us what you really, uh, really think. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. That was Max Hastings, all building up to the big moment. This is, in full, Boris Johnson's speech to the nation. Clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now and the timetable will be announced next week. And I've today appointed a cabinet to serve, as I will, until a new leader is in place. So I want to say to the millions of people who voted for us in 2019, many of them voting Conservative for the first time, thank you for that incredible mandate, the biggest Conservative majority since 1987, the biggest share of the vote since 1979. And the reason I have fought so hard in the last few days to continue to deliver that mandate in person was not just because I wanted to do so, but because I felt it was my job, my duty, my obligation to you to continue to do what we promised in 2019. And of course, I'm immensely proud of the achievements of this government from getting Brexit done to settling our relations uh, with the continent for over half a century, uh, reclaiming the power for this country to make its own laws in Parliament, getting us all through the pandemic, delivering the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe, the fastest exit from lockdown, and in the last few months, leading the West in standing up to Putin's aggression in Ukraine. And let me say now to the people of Ukraine that I know that we in the UK will continue to back your fight for freedom for as long as it takes. And at the same time, in this country, we've been pushing forward a vast programme of investment in infrastructure and skills and technology, the biggest in a century, because if I have one insight into human beings, it is that genius and talent and enthusiasm and imagination are evenly distributed throughout the population. But opportunity is not. And that's why... We must keep levelling up, keep unleashing the potential of every part of the United Kingdom. And if we can do that in this country, we will be the most prosperous in Europe. And in the last few days, I've tried to persuade my colleagues 
that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when we're actually only a handful of points behind in the polls, even in midterm after quite a few months of pretty relentless sledging and when the economic scene is so difficult domestically and internationally. And I regret uh, not to have been successful in those arguments. And of course, it's painful not to be able to see through so many ideas and, and projects myself. But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. And our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader equally committed to taking this country forward through tough times, not just helping families to get through it, but changing and improving the way we do things, cutting burdens on businesses and families, and yes, cutting taxes, because that is the way to generate the growth and the income we need to pay for great public services. And to that new leader, I say, whoever he or she may be, I say, I will give you as much support as I can. And to you, the British public, I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. I want to thank Carrie and our children, and all members of my family who have had to put up with so much for so long. I want to thank the peerless British Civil Service for all the help and support that you have given our police, our emergency services, and of course, our fantastic NHS, who at critical moment helped to extend my own period in office, as well as our armed services and our agencies that are so admired around the world, and our indefatigable Conservative Party members and supporters, whose selfless campaigning makes our democracy possible. I want to thank the wonderful staff here at Chequers, uh, here at number 10, and of course at Chequers, and our fantastic prop force detectives, the one group, by the way, uh, who never leak. Above all, I want to thank you, the British public, for the immense privilege that you have given me. And I want you to know that from now on until the new Prime Minister is in place, your interests will be served and the government of the country will be carried on. Being Prime Minister is an education in itself. I've travelled to every part of the United Kingdom and in addition to the beauty of our natural world, I found so many people possessed of such boundless British originality and so willing to tackle old problems in new ways that I know that even if things can sometimes seem dark now, our future together is golden. Thank you all very much. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast. Slightly longer than usual, but you'll forgive us because it's 
another Prime Minister was signing. The third one we've had on the Red Box podcast, so that's good. Uh, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you want to keep up to date on all the actual live news that's happening, tune into Times Radio. You can catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on DAB, on your smart speaker, on the Times Radio app, and on YouTube. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.